The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to Mates Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss the latest AV news, we look at subwoofer integration and the new EQ systems coming to market, and we also look at cost-effective ways to network your home. And as always, I'm joined by the AV Forum's pundits as normal. We have uh, Grim Goodburn. Hi, Grim. Hi, Phil. Nice to be here again. And also here is Neil Davidson. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. So uh, we're going to kick off straight away with uh, some of the news that's been going on since we were last on air. And uh, Blu-ray recorders are finally going to come out uh, at the start of June from Panasonic. But there is a small issue, guys, and that's with TV channels such as ITV who won't allow... HD recordings to the Blu-ray disc. Is this going to cause uh, major problems for, for the market share of a Blu-ray recorder? It does sound like someone's shooting themselves in the foot again. But, um, you know, you'd ex- you have to expect it. You know, someone will get anal about copy protection and say, well, if you're going to make a really good copy of it, there's no point in you um, going out and buying the film or whatever. But I'm sure there's ways around it that um, could satisfy both ends of the market because, you know, you know, not everybody wants to record onto massive hard disks. Um, they just want the thing on a disk so they can hand it to their friends so they can watch the programme and things like that. Um, how big a problem is it really going to be? That's the question. I think ITV are being a bit, bit bullish because nobody else is really going and throwing all their toys out their pram over it. But, um, well, we will see. But uh, Blu-ray recorders without being able to record the HD transmissions will have, um, well, I would assume, a seriously limited market. Yeah, I mean, I actually happen to think that it's already a fairly limited market. Um, I have to say I've never needed to to copy anything off my Sky HD box, Um, so I can't really think why I would need to have a Blu-ray recorder to do that. I'm sure there are people who need that, but I'm afraid it's it's not really a technology for me. I think it's had its day. Okay, there's a limitation. I just don't think it's it's that relevant to the marketplace today. So I guess what you're saying there, Neil, is is that the market's moving away from recording onto uh, removable media. I guess with Sky Plus and, and Sky HD Plus, people are getting used to... And there's also, I have to say, other receivers out there that also record on hard disk. I guess people are getting used to the idea that they just record the program they want and time shift as they want and no need to, to buy different media to record onto. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the way I see it, the sort of hassle and the cost of having all of this media lying around to record the programs compared with the convenience of a hard disk recorder. I just, um, I don't see it for myself. I'm sure there are still people who are interested in this technology, but I think that for the majority of people, it's just one inconvenient step too far uh, when faced with all the benefits of time shifting and all that sort of stuff that you kind of get used to with the hard drive based systems. Yeah I think Neil's quite right there. Um, The only person I know that does it is my sister. Um, She records stuff onto DVD at the moment and then takes it to my parents who up until recently refused to have anything to do with Sky but um, 
uh, it just so happens that the Sky HD box went in the other day, so um, my sister now has no need for a DVD recorder, um, let alone a Blu-ray one. So I think Neil's probably right. Yeah. If ITV are going to be that bullish about it and not allow HD recordings, the market for the damn thing is, um, well, less than 1%, maybe. And it's it's not only ITV. Um, BBC will allow um, the recording of HD content but they won't allow recording of films in HD. Uh, and you can only copy once. Um, <laughs> so if you want okay. to copy from the, the hard drive in the recorder to the Blu-ray desk, you can only do it the one time with BBC HD. So it, it sounds like it's it, it's almost throttling the market before it even starts. It's typical um, Hollywood paranoia about copy protection, isn't it? I mean, I'll... I'm, I'll wasn't surprised at all that you said films weren't allowed to be copied to Blu-ray. But you know, documentaries and everything else, well, why the hell not? I think BBC's probably taking the sensible view there. They're probably being told that they can't allow the films to be recorded. Um, and they're just allowing everything else because they don't really see the point of uh, worrying about it because the market's that small. I, I don't see car boot sales over Wembley Market being awash with people with bootfuls of uh, Blu-rays um, from the latest uh, blockbuster that was on 9 o'clock the night before. I don't see the point. Everybody are either watch it, or as like Neil says, if you've got Sky HD, you just record the damn thing and watch it. And, um, you know, leave it on there as long as you like. Bigger hard discs and things like this. Um, of course, if Sky HD enable the SATA port on the back of their HD boxes, um, I think the whole argument for... Um, solid media that you can move about, like disc-based, uh, will go completely out the window. Yeah, so it, that's one area of uh, of where things is moving forward. And um, like you say, Neil, there will be uh, consumers out there that are interested in the Blu-ray recorders. We will have one at AV Forums for review very soon. But moving on, online video is also um, starting to step up now. Uh, we're seeing a lot of the new TVs that are coming out with widgets and Panasonic have a version called Viera Cast and Samsung do the Yahoo widgets and so on, where you can stream video from YouTube and so on. YouTube are in negotiations with ITV and Channel 4 at the moment to host content on there. Um, do you see this as, as, as one area which will go? I mean, we've got uh, BBC iPlayer, which is going HD and will be on the FreeSat platform. So is this a, an area for growth uh, in the market? Well, I think absolutely. Um, regular listeners to the podcast, Phil, will know that I really believe that downloads will overcome all physical media. The only barrier to that is simply how quick our broadband connections are. Um, <laughs> and as that lucky sod Graham can attest, if you have a quick enough broadband connection, there's simply nothing more convenient than just going on and clicking the content that you want and, and down it comes. Um, I already, although I don't have quite as high a speed um, can download the, the the iPlayer and stuff like that in, in HD quality. And it's just simply very, very convenient. It's a lot more convenient than going out to, for example, even to go out and rent a Blu-ray or something like that. And I, I, I just think that the whole download thing is, is where it's all moving to. And the fact that it's built into the TVs as well can only help the usability and the take-up of these services. Yep, everybody will be having a network port behind their televisions very soon. Any install, any custom installer listening that doesn't put an RJ45 socket on the wall behind the TV is missing a trick. And Grim, there will be listeners listening that, that haven't got a clue what you're talking about there, so maybe you could just quickly explain that point that you've just made. Um, 
To enable broadband access in your home, you will need, obviously, a broadband connection into the house and either a wireless connection to laptops and stuff like that, or for more guaranteed uh, broadband speeds and uh, download speeds, etc., etc., you need to use a cable called Cat5e or better. And the connections on the end of those are simply called RJ45s. It's like a mains plug or any other connector. Just called, this one's called an RJ45, and it carries the transmission data from wherever you're downloading from to your PC or PC-enabled device, like some of the tellies. And uh, if you have a socket on the back of the wall that's connected up to your internal home network, plug it into the telly, and the telly will also be connected to your home network. End of problem. This is definitely somewhere where the market is moving. I've seen a lot of the new TVs uh, that are starting to come through now with the widgets on board. Now, some of them are not great. Um, You'd be a lot quicker on your laptop looking up for your news headlines and so on. But this online video and the catch-up services like iPlayer and uh, Channel 4 and Demand and so on, do you think that that this is the the area that's really going to grow as we move on the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Neil and I have always said this in previous podcasts that download is the future. It's just um, broadband Britain's got to uh, run the backbone cables to allow everybody sufficient data rates to be able to do this. Um, with, With iPlayer, you can download it separate to watching it. And then watch it once it's downloaded. But um, you know, like Neil Neil attested to, um, I when I've missed something or forgotten to record it or simply been down the pub and just couldn't be bothered, I'll come back, fire up BBC iPlayer, and stream it straight from the PC to the telly and watch it as it's downloading. Speed's not a problem, and I'll catch up with all the programs like that. And the quality, it has to be said, even on 50 inch. Uh, plasma TVs is not that bad. It's imminently watchable these days, that's for sure. Yeah, it's much better than the um, crap uh, mobile phone video clips on YouTube. Let's put it that way. Okay, so that's new technology which is starting to filter through now, and obviously the deals are starting to be uh, negotiated between the content providers. Let's move on to audio, and Odyssey have, have announced or launched uh, some new products recently, which uh, I don't think we have talk, talked about yet on the podcast. I think we may have alluded to a couple of them last uh, month. But DSX technology is new from Odyssey, and this will allow the addition of uh, extra width and extra height channels. Now, Neil, we, we spoke about uh, Dolby ProLogic 2Z last time around, and it's adding in a height channel. But it looks like Odyssey are, are going one step further with the width as well. Yes, uh, Odyssey not to be left behind. Um, I think Odyssey in some ways start to see themselves as the new Dolby now. The two seem to have very uh, very closely competing technologies these days. Again, the, the discussion that we had the last time for the Dolby stuff was that it's certainly very interesting, but for me the question still remains is, is it compelling enough to encourage people to find a way to fit these four extra speakers or whatever it is into their systems. We already know it's difficult enough to fit in a good 7.1, never mind a system that has side speakers or upper presence speakers or or whatever you want to call them. Um, I think that that for me is the biggest barrier to the technology at this minute in time. 
I would have to agree with Neil. The biggest barrier is getting over the fact that you have to add extra speakers into an install. Um, it's not the cost of them. It's um, the Y factor. Will she actually accept it? I guess it's going to be a problem for the living rooms. And, and this is what we discussed last month. And, and um, obviously, we, we don't want to go over the ground that we've already spoken about. But um, would a better way not not be to use a, a DSP solution where um, you're adding in... Uh, these extra channels, but but doing it via DSP engine and trying to create the same effect. It's always the case of if it's done well, it'll probably work for some things, but it, it can't work well for everything all of the time. Some effects will be great if you can do that, but via DSP and other effects, you simply can't. Um, it's been tried a hundred times before. Um, as we were chatting before we went live, I remember I had a Yamaha amp ooh, ages and ages and ages ago that had these extra two front channels that you they suggested you used for two extra speakers to gain height. And I actually wired them up. The missus hated it. Um, I saw no benefit to it whatsoever at the time but occasionally you thought oh that's not bad but on other stuff it just did nothing at all and that's the problem um what sort of effect are you trying to recreate and is it always the same it's a serious question and um until i hear it from yourself i won't actually know the answer but uh, the biggest problem is uh you know putting nine ten speakers into a house that's already got seven um don't know many people that would um, be brave enough to ask their wife if they could do that these days. <laughs> so, so that's the the Odyssey DSX technology, and uh, Denon are the first uh, company to have that on board with their new products uh, launching over the summer. Um, so, it'll be interesting to see uh, how the forum members take to that technology, and uh, if you do set up and you want to give us your opinions or so on, then send us an email, podcast at avforums.com. Uh, the other bit of new technology is uh, the subwoofer EQ system, which uh, Odyssey have launched in conjunction with SVS. Guys creating quite a bit of buzz on the forums. Uh, I take it that there certainly is a market for this type of technology. Oh, un- undoubtedly there is a market because uh, one of the things I've actually been discussing um, elsewhere with, with some people is... Uh, a change away from from tweaking. So in, in days of old, we used to have great style, fun tweaking racks and cable lifters and different <laughs> types of cables and, and all of that good subjective stuff. And I think that what we've seen um, over the last, well, over the last 18 months or so in particular is a shift towards objective tweaking. So I'm going to trademark that right now, objective tweaking. Um, <laughs> People doing things like personal display calibration um, or doing their own audio calibrations and so on. Really things where you can measure and understand the benefits. Um, you, you only need to go onto the forums though and find out how obsessed people can, can become with these things and spend hundreds of hours trying to get the, the very last percentage of perfection out of their systems. And for, for me, that's fantastic. That's good fun. That's a lot better, I think, than... You know, spending thousands of pounds a meter on cables or anything like that. Um, and these new, very powerful DSP products that we're talking about for audio, um, yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'm really delighted to see them. Um, and I, I hope that more people will get to use them. Yeah, I think um, 
basically when we've done demonstrations with a properly integrated sub and most people come along and go, oh, wow, I didn't realise it could sound so good. Um, there is definitely huge, huge benefits in actually subwoofer EQ systems. Um, you know, don't get me wrong designing the room right in the first place always has to be the place where everybody starts but um yeah i've been to some places recently of, of other forum members and uh, their installs are seriously hampered by the fact that they they actually live in the houses so anything that can help with that and give them what they know they can get out of a good quality sub and a good quality system i don't see any problem with that whatsoever Bring it on. Uh, Grim, you mentioned um, the integration of the subwoofer into the into the system, and that seems to be a stumbling point for a lot of people. You, you read some of the kit lists on the forums, and, you, and then you look at the rooms that the, the kit's being used in. Is there a tendency for people to put big kit in small rooms and not actually take into account how to integrate that, that together? Well, I'm not saying everybody um, misses a trick, but a lot of people... Um, whether it's an education factor or something that you simply haven't been informed or taught, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with big kit in rooms. Um, you know, obviously you have to pick your kit relatively sensibly, but the, you know, you can integrate these things with a bit of effort. But you've got to understand what it is you're trying to do and how to measure it. More importantly, um, and how to interpret the results. And it could be anything from you know, physically the speaker has to move somewhere or, you know, move the cabinet width like it did in one of the installs I was at recently and it just transforms the bass response and basically you're just looking for seamless integration from the highest frequency to the lowest frequency that your sub will produce. Um, if it gets louder at any point, that's what you have to correct because there's nothing worse than a particular bass frequency being a bit quiet and the next frequency up is much, much too loud because you're forever grabbing hold of the volume knob, turning it up and down, which is what you hear a lot. People saying, oh, the bass is too much, I'll have to turn it down. But when you fully integrate a system, you can run it much louder and nobody complains. It's really a eureka moment. And um, the more people that want to do this, and the forum is full of people that want to do it, they just don't know how. There was a thread on the forums a little while ago uh, where uh, a gentleman in Bathgate uh, which is the town that I live in, was complaining that he had booming bass um, in his system and the advice ranged from you will never get good bass in your room to you need to get a granite plinth. And I think there was two <laughs> or three other suggestions. Um, luckily, no one suggested he get a new cable for, for his bass to, to lighten <laughs> it out any, um, as I've seen elsewhere this week. Um, so I decided that I would test my own particular theory, which, as Graham said, is that the positioning was lousy um, and I went over to his house and spent maybe an hour or two there uh, with the measuring equipment that Graham and I both use um, and of course it was immediately obvious that it was a room issue just with the placement of the subwoofer um, combined in fact with an Odyssey 2 EQ system um, and the measurement for the 2 EQ was incredibly tricky because it was being measured uh, in a room null that was very, very narrow. I mean, the null was 20 centimetres across, something like that. Um, and it just happened that these two things were building on each other so that the system was producing this terrible booming bass, no f finesse or sophistication, and just moving the sub 
um, and being a bit more careful with the 2EQ positioning transformed that system. Now, we spoke about this last month, Neil, um, and we actually spoke about that case study as well. Um, but m- maybe what might help um, form listeners listening into this conversation is um, how they can visualize how a subwoofer actually works. You're talking about nulls. Uh, there's also room modes and, and all sorts. So is is there an easy way that they can start to picture things in their system and, and then maybe apply that with some of the free software that's available? There is an easy way. Um, and it's an incredibly difficult way for me to describe on a podcast. Um, I think what we'll do is uh, we will put up a post um, on the forum um, that shows a little diagram, uh, again, of a tool that we use for our designs. Um, And what that does is it shows graphically uh, the way that room modes um, happen in a room and how they interact with the subwoofer and the seating positions to create the overall frequency response. Um, And probably what we'll do is we'll put a link to that um, in the, the podcast thread so that people can have a look at that and visualize better what room modes are. And I think you're correct, Phil. Once you can visualize what they are, then it really helps a lot. The second thing that people can try, Phil, to, to help them understand what room modes are is if they download one of the, the many, many free uh, tone generators and actually some of the tools that we mentioned last time, like the Room EQ Wizard, have these built right into them. If they would plug that into the subwoofer um, and play these test tones, 20 hertz, 25 hertz, 30 hertz, um, just steadily going up and walk around in the room. And it's incredible to actually listen to how the bass varies in intensity based on the frequency and where you are in the room. The first time that you actually do that experiment, is it's almost like a revelation. Um, you've seen it, you've heard about it, but until you actually hear it, um, you can't fully appreciate what it means for the sound. Um, and if you can correct those things, well, absolutely fantastic. Uh, Neil, an- another thing um, moving on from the, the, the actual bass response in the rooms is um, I've heard it quite a few times, you've probably heard this saying as well, that people have difficulties with different manufacturers speakers and subwoofers and actually integrating them there's lots of technical issues as to how to actually integrate and your crossover points and so on but have you ever come across a situation where one manufacturer's subwoofer has has not integrated with another manufacturer's main speakers um not in terms of the frequency response i think graham and i will both share the experience that if you have a subwoofer that performs competently as a subwoofer, um, it's, it's, it's not easy, but if you have the tools to, to measure what you're doing, you can make it integrate properly. But sometimes we have found products that claim to be subwoofers that do absolutely nothing um, for sub-bass reinforcement. And oftentimes they can have very slight tonal changes, well, slight, quite noticeable tonal changes, um, and in those situations, there's just simply nothing that you can do to get them to integrate properly. Thankfully, those situations are very rare, though. And I guess that also moves on to a point where uh, lots of people make this assumption that bass is not... It's very difficult to localise. Um, now, is this a myth or not? I mean, do you have to get to certain frequency points before that becomes an issue? Or um... Well, r- r- real real bass is very difficult to localise. Um, the problems that you get are if you have harmonics of the bass um, that come at a higher frequency, of course, then you can immediately localise them. 
uh, or if you get other effects like port noise and things like that are common effects that you can have that just detract away from the the real bass with with sort of effects that are not the real bass but are associated with the real bass that that pull you into it. Um, certainly, our experience though is that if you have uh, a speaker that can produce real bass without the distortion and without the sort of cabinet resonances and all sorts of stuff like that that you can pick up on, then below, probably below about 70 hertz. 80 hertz you can still just about pick it up, but below about 70 hertz it's almost impossible to to sit in the chair, shut your eyes and point to where the subwoofer is. Okay, well, we seem to have covered some of the the issues that that have been... uh... Uh, rolling on over the last few days on the forums there and and thanks for the input there guys um it's always interesting to get the uh the opinions actual people that go out there and actually install these systems um it's always great to get that feedback now let's go back to the eq systems now these eq systems are very powerful powerful dsps in there um they do do a job but what would your advice be on the correct setup of these systems? Because there's lots of people assuming that all they need to do is EQ system into their audio chain and it'll fix all their problems. <laughs> if only that was true, yeah. Um, it, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, yes, we'll plug it in and we'll run the auto setup and it's much, much better. But that's normally only half the story. Um, you do need some nice equipment to be able to measure it and find out exactly what it's done and what it hasn't done and what you can do to further tailor that to give you a better response. Um, It's all down to price at the end of the day. You know, the cheaper objects, um, some some are good, some are bad, some are indifferent. The good ones do, it must be said, a very good job um, for, you know, what should we say, um, a semi-competent person that likes their audio they will be able to hear the difference and be quite happy with the setup Um, to gain the last what should we say 10% 15% of performance um, you just need to go to that next level and you know any equipment that allows a degree of manual tinkering afterwards um, is probably worth paying for as well because it can only get better and the closer you get to a nice flat response um, it really becomes like I said a eureka moment um, I'm not suggesting everybody will go out and spend you know 10 grand on a on an EQ system for a big home theater that will give them the sort of performance most most of us only dream of but uh, you know for a few hundred quid you can do quite well if you know exactly what it's doing what it isn't doing and um, have a little bit of knowledge to know how to correct the things that it's not currently doing and you can get very good results from them that's um, time is money at the end of the day I know one particular chap that Neil also knows he's going to spend the entire bank holiday weekend um, moving things around and re-EQing the system using the auto setup to just to see what differences it makes because he knows he's on the right track now we've pointed him in the right direction and um, you know good luck to the fella but uh, obviously if you're paying for that type of thing mm, yeah, put a few people off but uh, yeah um, anything that's anything that does a good auto job and then allows a degree of manual tinkering afterwards and gives you a graphical representation of what it is it's doing is um, a very powerful system indeed and it doesn't necessarily have to cost a bomb. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
Graham makes some fantastic points there. Some of the things that people should consider are that the AV receivers that, that most of us have at home um, already have some very, very powerful features. Um, but really for a few hundred quid more, some of the new Behringer stuff, for example, is it's surprisingly competent. You can really, really do a lot of stuff with that for a device that's maybe 300 quid for a couple of channels. Um, and if you're a real enthusiast, well, that's that's not going to be too much of a problem for you to spend that money for the benefits that you can gain. Um, and, and even three years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have that level of performance available and also have access to the tools required to set them up properly. Um, the other thing that I need to pick up on uh, is the point that Graham made about going that, that last 10%. Now, again, depending on your perspective, there are last 10% and there are last 10%. <laughs> so I guess probably a lot of people listening to this um, and who've seen our videos and stuff know that Graham and I get involved in some fairly expensive systems, but we both happen to know a, a particular American gentleman, um, and people can look up this website. Um, the guy's name is Keith Yates, <laughs> uh, and people can look up Keith Yates' company website. It's Keith Yates Design Group. Um, now, I can tell people that Keith Yates really takes it to the last 10%, um, and we've seen some of the stuff that Keith Yates does, and oh it left word. me and Graham open mouth. Never mind anyone else. So there are 10% and there are 10%. And I think the, the, the arbiter of the final 10% is when Keith Yates says, that's too much, then we all know that that is the final level of performance <laughs> that you can get. Well, it's always a, an issue which comes up on the forums. I'm sure we're going to cover it in the future again um, as more of these products come onto the market. If people are interested, um, we have got one review up at the moment um, for a new system like that, which Russell covered. And we should have the SVS system up there after review soon as well. So let's move things on slightly and uh, wrap up on the news uh, with a state of the industry report. And uh, we said we were going to come back to the economy on future podcasts. So how are things standing at the moment? Well, Sony have uh, just announced their biggest loss in 14 years. Uh, they have lost £685 million. Pounds. That's 98.9 billion yen. Um, Panasonic posted a loss of 378.96 billion yen. That's <laughs> I'm just trying to uh, figure out what that number actually looks like. And uh, Pioneer posted a loss of 130 billion yen for its audiovisual sector. And uh, poor old Sanyo, 93.2 billion. Um, guys, these figures, the, the, you look at the, the economy and what our government's pumping into the economy, but these figures are just as big. Um Surely it's 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 not a very good sign. Oh, it's bloody massive, um, uh, and I assume most people realised it was coming as well. Um, you know, the world the world economy is not in the best of states this year and the tail end of last year, and um, the two thousand eight two thousand nine figures for most companies that can be affected by such things will make. Um, quite eye-watering reading I must admit um, losses in the AV industry are not unheard of normally but um, when it when it starts getting into hundreds of millions of pounds um, it is it, serious business and that's why certain companies have decided not to go down certain routes anymore 
um, because you know, they just simply can't make money at it. But at the end of the day, um, as I was discussing with Phil offline before we started, um, a lot of companies will see this as a financial year uh, opportunity to write off certain R&D costs, um, factory costs, manufacturing costs, and new product costs and things like that. Because if you're going to have a bad year, you may as well have a bad, a really bad year. And, you know, 5th of April's come and gone and um, we're into a new year now. And, you know, just wipe the state clean. You know, if you're going to have a loss, you may as well have a big one. And then next year, show a small profit and everybody calms down. Um, you know, when you're talking about 98 billion yen or 378 billion yen, they're just numbers, really. The fact that it's a big number, um, is it any worse for a company the size of Panasonic, which is absolutely huge, um, to lose that amount of money and Sony lose um, 30% of it? Um, Sony's a much smaller company than Panasonic, so maybe per head, Panasonic have actually lost more, less money. I don't know. Um, but it's you know, it's like they say in governments, it was a good year to bury bad news. And if people were going to make losses, they may as well make big ones and then get it over and done with, take it on the chin and move on. I just hope that um, more than one or two companies come out the other side of it. Because at the moment, you know, it's a great deal of nervousness, you know, you know like Philips and uh, Panasonic, Pioneer and Fujitsu, obviously. Uh, you know, and you know, everybody's not making money and... Huge cuts are on their way. Um, I just hope that they don't get rid of the wrong people and stifle you know, uh, technology updates and um, enhancements that uh, would actually turn them around. Uh, yeah, uh, that's finance people's decisions and um, well, technical people and finance people simply don't get along, so I'll shut up now. Thank you. Graham, do, do you think that a lot of this comes down to um, the fact that we're talking about Japanese companies here. Um, do, do you think a lot of this comes down to the fact that the yen is so strong at the minute and this is why these companies are, are maybe suffering more than, say, the, your Samsungs from Korea and so on? It's very difficult. Um, if you talk to American companies, they're not having a very good time of it either. Um, I know some people that work at Samsung and people like that, and they're not having a very good time. So I think it's universal. The fact that most people tend to focus on the Japanese companies, uh, purely and simply that most of the stuff comes from Japan. Um, uh, I'd love to have a crystal ball and find out what we're going to be doing at Christmas or you know the, f- the first half of next year, uh, or, and indeed who's around. But... Um, it would be suicide if the people that are left didn't continue their R&D and come up with new products that people want. One thing's for sure, that the uh, price-cutting war um, probably is not sustainable because the first thing that happens when people make them amount of losses is they're not going to sell products at you know, 0.5% profit anymore. They're going to put realistic prices on them. And uh, people just have to accept that um, the days of a... Yeah, a 500 quid bargain 50 inch flat screen are probably not going to happen unless people are getting rid of old stock you know, I've seen some pretty honest prices for decent screens recently and they're all up at the two and a half, three thousand pound mark which is really where they ought to be for everybody to survive and everybody's just going to have to get used to the fact that you, know, you get what you pay for and if it's expensive, it's expensive for a reason. It's because they're going to be around this time next year and they're going to give you, you know, support um, to match and you're going to get a better product. 
And if people are not prepared to pay for that, well, we're all in serious trouble. And uh, and Neil, um, there is there does seem to be some kind of dis- disparity between um, some of the data that we're getting coming from market uh, analysts and these losses that are being posted by these companies. I mean, the GFK data is showing that the AV market, especially for, for display technology, is only down 2% so far this year. Now, we've seen bigger drops when times are good in the AV uh, side of things, the display side of things. So uh, how come that we're only 2% down and yet these companies are posting such big losses? There must be something in there. Is it the fact that um, the margins aren't there? Well, I think... Truthfully, Graham's probably hit the nail on the head that if you're going to have bad news and you know that all your competitors are going to have bad news, what a great time to uh, get in those tricky write-offs that you've been looking to get rid of for a while. Um, I'm certain that that must play some part in it. There's no doubt as well that the yen um, also is playing a big part in it. Um, And again, the final thing is just the huge volume of products that these companies produce. Um, don't forget, it seems like we've had the credit crunch forever, but it kind of took us all by surprise in October there. Um, and all of the inventory and stock and all these kind of things to produce all of the panels that we're buying now was certainly all purchased um, when days were good, let's say. Um, probably this time last year at, at the very latest. Um, so many, many factors that have come together uh, to produce these very large losses. Um, I think one thing that I would just like to say as well is that for me, although the company Panasonic is, is kind of showing the biggest loss there, I think that out of them all, they also perhaps have the biggest opportunity now because Panasonic has focused so much on plasma TV. Um, they really, they almost have a monopoly now in plasma TV. I know that Samsung and LG are still doing something, but, but we know that, that, that Panasonic has the plants and the better engineers and so on. Um, And what we've seen from Panasonic is that Panasonic really are making moves um, to produce uh, displays that are either very innovative or um, have other features. They're looking to to appeal to more niche markets, um, the custom install market with the VX series, for example. Um, And the reason that they're doing that is because it allows them to produce products that they can charge a higher price for and they can make some money. Um, they don't need to make a fortune on every panel, but they do need to make some money. Um, and that's probably the, the big difference. You know, a few tens of dollars per flat screen of profit for the manufacturer versus a few tens of dollars loss per flat screen, as they probably have at this minute. It's the difference between a 100 billion yen profit and a 100 billion yen loss. And for me, Panasonic is the company that's best positioned to, to kind of flip it around next year. And uh, while we're talking about people moving about in the market, and obviously Panasonic uh, do look to be doing that, uh, there's also news coming out from City Analysts who are predicting that Sony are going to head down market um, and shift its focus to uh, from the, the high-priced prestige products to, to low-cost, high-volume items. Um, that's quite a turn-up for Sony, isn't it? I'm not sure exactly what people mean by that because 
Sony product, yeah, traditionally people like the styling, this, that, and the other, but high-end product, um, yeah, Sony's got an image of being better than some of the others, but it's, you know, it's not high-end like people would perceive Meridian, Bang & Olufsen, people like that, or Lova, maybe. Um, I, I think the thing about them, well, the rumour that they would head down market... I, I really don't know what to think of that. No, I'd, I'd take that with a pinch of salt because um, they can't compete in that type of market. They, they have a market for themselves and that's where their strengths are. Um, yeah, it was built up on CRT TVs in days of old and camcorders and I know almost everybody had one. Um, I don't know anybody, friends, family, school friends, college friends, university friends that didn't own the Sony telly or had a Sony camcorder. Um, and everybody's got a PlayStation. Um, those are the things they're good at, and they're the things that they should stick at. Um, you know, going down and making widgets to compete with, you know, these Chinese brands that are here today, gone tomorrow, just, just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Okay, well, uh, thanks, guys, and that wraps up the AV news for this month, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. So, guys, um, to wrap up on this month's podcast, we're going to talk about home control systems. Now, automatically, people are going to start thinking about Crestro and EMX, uh, those kind of companies, but that's not the angle we're going to take to start this conversation off, is it? Neil, the iPhone, what can the iPhone do for me? Well, the iPhone is a very interesting device, um, which has has kind of thrown the whole world of control on its head a little bit, to be honest with you, Phil. Um, traditionally, the world of, of high-end control, as people know about it, and even, well, even normal control with feedback and so on, meant that you needed to have a very expensive, uh, dedicated touchscreen device. And then about 18 months ago, of course, along came the iPhone, but even more so the iPod Touch with Wi-Fi built right into it. Um, So suddenly you had this device, very powerful, really good uh, size, because, of course, the ergonomics are perfect, Um, great graphics, um, everyone knows how to use them, but retailing for £200. Now, that was a pretty big surprise, I guess, to a lot of companies who had been making a lot of money selling very expensive touchscreen devices. Now, what we've seen since then is that there is a fairly interesting market now, and one that I'm surprised hasn't gone much further than it has, but it's slowly bubbling along, developing home control applications Um, And what I can tell you is that all of the big home control companies already have um, native iTouch or iPhone applications ready to go that just replace these mega expensive touch panels um, with something that people are used to using and fits in their pocket. So Neil, for the forum members, maybe you can explain how they can use devices like the iPhone and, and the iTouch to start controlling their homes and what kind of things they can start thinking about. Maybe they've got the technology already and, and it's just a case of tying it all together. One of the biggest problems with the, the iTouch, um, as we'll call the iPod Touch from now on, and the iPhone is that they don't really have any IR or anything like that. Um, but what they do have is they have Wi-Fi. Um, and people need to remember that Wi-Fi is, of course, a two-way um, protocol. Now, 
the first little piece of the puzzle in developing a home control system is that you need to have, at some point, a centralized device called a processor. Um, and that processor is what actually communicates from the remote control itself to all of the various devices that you've got in your equipment rack. Now, there is a very interesting company called Global Cache, and Global Cache make a, a Wi-Fi to RS-232 and IR processor box. Uh, very, very cool little thing. Quite inexpensive. It's less than £200. And what people can do is that, of course, they can communicate via Wi-Fi to this box um, and then control the devices that they have in the rack. Now, of course, the tricky part is that you need to have an app running on the iPhone that will communicate through to that global cache box. And probably the best known of these types of apps is a thing uh, called the Air Remote. So Air Remote was shown at, at Cedia um, a couple of years ago, um, I believe it was. Um, and the development of that particular product uh, continues on now. Um, so with something like the Air Remote, the global cache box, you actually have a very, very powerful two-way uh, feedback control system uh, with a Wi-Fi, so really an RF-based communication between the processor and the handset. Now, uh, if people want to move up from there, probably the next level of control that people would look at um, is a system from a company called Control4. Um, and Control4 have been around for quite a number of years. Um, and they make a, a, a really good range of, of less expensive but still very high-quality control products. You can actually go about developing a whole control system um, using Control4. So to do your lights to do your uh, security, move music around and all that type of stuff. Um, but again, Control 4 have dedicated applications to control, uh, sorry, to use the iTouch as a touch panel. Um, and then, of course, if we continue to move up to the scale, uh, we find our friends Prestron and AMX. And again, both of those companies have recently released applications that allow you to use the iPod Touch or the iPhone as a dedicated touch panel rather than buying one of their um, their own touch panels. So it's really something that's rocked the whole control industry and is, uh, is, is shaking it up. So, Graham, what are the advantages to, say, a forum member to have a whole home control system uh, like that, either based on an iPod or uh, based on the, the iPhone or even some of these other remote controls that are now doing the, the whole Wi-Fi thing? It, it, is it still a very very much an enthusiast uh, area for them where, where they'll have to do a lot of groundwork or um, other solutions on the market? It's a very, very good question, actually, Phil, because from my standpoint and, you know, um, various members of the family and things like this and the installs that I see, um, you know, the, the more technical people will just have a coffee table full of remote controls. But they're the only ones that can operate the system. And if you're planning a really good system with full integration and trying to make it all user-friendly, um, you don't want to be confronted by seven remotes with the eight-year-old trying to watch, you know, um, CBeebies or something like this on the telly. So um, a, a, a fully-fledged control system, which puts all the controls you need on one nice, friendly, easy-to-use interface with buttons like Watch TV and things like this um, are a no-brainer, apart 
from traditionally the cost of doing it, which puts off mum and dad. You know, they think, oh, God, you know, I've seen these touch panels at a thousand pound an inch. And, um, you know, you, they really can cost that. You know, you see a, a, a full quality two way high resolution screen could cost seven thousand quid for a seven inch panel. And, you know, it's just, you know, the custom installers can't put that type of thing to a client that's just got, you know, a plasma and a, and a, and a good quality uh, 7.1 surround system in the house because it's, it's probably you know, more than half the price of what they've bought. So the fact that now we can have these processes at reasonable cost and an inter, a control interface from the likes of the iPod Touch um, for another couple of hundred pounds, all of a sudden opens up that entire area to people that just thought a control system was completely out of their budget. And if they had a budget for a control system and were thinking, or oh, maybe it's going to be a couple of thousand pounds or something like this, all of a sudden you free up some of that budget to actually give them a higher performance AV system, which I can't see anybody turning down. You know, it's it's like saying, well, it's the difference between having a 60-inch LG plasma and a 65-inch all-singing, all-dancing VX Panasonic plasma. Um, you've saved that amount of money, so you might as well have the better telly or the better speakers or the better surround sound processor. And it opens up the market to, you know, to average people to have beyond average equipment. You know, like in the, you know, in the good old days, it made the difference between having, you know, your, your cheapest Denon um, one-box hi-fi with five little satellite speakers, and all of a sudden you could end up with an all-singing, all-dancing, you know, Tag McLaren setup, or you know, Meridian, Lexicon, uh, ADA, things like this, because um, the price difference between them is, you know, it's a few thousand quid here, a few thousand quid there, but if you've got a set budget. And all of a sudden, your control system's not costing you ten thousand pounds, twelve thousand pounds, fifteen thousand pounds. You can you can spend that on better quality stuff, and everybody's happy. I really, you know, I think it's marvellous that all of a sudden all these companies are now waking up to the fact that they can use these control panels uh, in in a manner that was unheard of a couple of years ago. It simply it simply wasn't around. You know, um, Apple. Yeah. we've got a lot to thank Apple for really because um, all of a sudden there's now money available for everybody to give people better hi-fi, better picture, better video, better audio and um, I don't really see a problem with that at all Just to pick up on a point there as well an obvious question that people might be asking themselves is, is how can Apple come along from nowhere uh, and produce a device that is so good when the control systems companies have been around for so long <laughs> well, I, I was looking at this exact question um, for one of our customers, um, and I think that there is one statistic that tells you everything you need to know. So Crestron, which is regarded as the biggest company in custom install, uh, in 2008, their worldwide turnover, or revenue, I should say, was $400 million. Now, in Q1 of 2008, Apple's turnover or, or revenue was $9.6 billion. You don't really need to know much more than to know that that is why Apple can come along um, and if they really want to, they can produce a device that shakes everyone up in the way that the, the iTouch has done so. Now, Neil, the obvious question here is then, well, 
lots of custom installers out there were used to selling Crestron or AMX systems, and the programming that went with that was where uh, it cost an awful lot of money. Um, what's a system like this now that Apple come along with the applications and so on? What kind of effect is that going to have on the industry? I, I take it they're all now having to rethink the, their strategies. Well, in, in my opinion, absolutely. Um, custom installers who have traditionally relied on that model, which is a lot of them, Phil, as you know, um, really absolutely will have to rethink their strategies um, or they will suffer the consequences. Um, I, I don't believe that it is, is possible or feasible anymore for even the very best companies to come along and say, um, as Graham said, it's a £1,000 an inch for one of these touch panels. To say there's £8,000 for an 8-inch touch panel compared to, let's even say, £500 for an iPhone or an iTouch with engraving and all that type of stuff on it as well. Um, the, the, the customer simply will not stand for it. I think the good news for all of these companies, though, is the customer's budget isn't going to change. The guy still has the money to spend on a mega high-end system. It's just now that he can get a much better system than he would have done previously. Um, One of the things that certainly has been my experience of going on to uh, numerous sites where very expensive control systems have been installed is that, truthfully, the end components, so the displays, the speakers, maybe the amplification it simply hasn't been of the best quality compared with the control system which has eaten up so much of the budget um, so uh, we uh, we are seeing a, a change in custom install it's probably the biggest challenge that a lot of custom installers will have faced in their business to date um, and I really hope that, that they can adapt and survive in, in the new economy and of course the, the other side of the coin has to be that uh, with the costs uh, of control systems coming down, it, it, your marketplace is, is going to expand exponentially, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, it does open up the marketplace. Um, we already see that there are a, a number of companies uh, who frequent the forums who are doing a good job um, of attracting those forum members who are looking at the smaller custom installation products. Um, companies like uh, Nuvo, um System Lame, Opus, etc., have all done a really good job of of offering relatively inexpensive systems for people. Um, but now the whole idea of adding a full layer of control on top of the sort of music distribution system uh, it, it becomes a reality. I mean, you know, people like you and me can afford to have this in our homes. Um, I, I could afford to have my house now wired. Uh, so that I have wireless uh, dimmers, for example, in all of the rooms. Um, f- for me, that would be fantastic. If if you go on holiday, you can program it up to do all stuff. Um, if you go up to bed, you don't need to, to think about switching all the lights off. I mean, there's, there's small things, but they are things that just make your life easier rather than being there just to be cool. Um, and I think that is the thing that these sort of more lower cost but still very high performance control options allow you to do. Yeah, and at the end of the day, um, the custom installer 
will probably get more work out of it if you know the customer is saying well i can't afford to have multi-room in my kitchen and i can't afford to have it in the bathroom because you're telling me the control interfaces for them are a couple of thousand quid each and if all of a sudden he says well if i told you you could do it on a couple of hundred quids worth or 500 quids worth they're probably going to get that that type of work and they're going to be adding to the multi-room install by putting this stuff in the kitchen and the and the bathroom and it makes the quoting and estimating process and the sale that much easier because you're giving the customer value for money and well with a bit of luck they might even spend a little bit more because they can see the wisdom in getting it all done as opposed to saying oh, i can only afford to have the front room done um there is an important point though that um, these control systems are not designed to take over every single AMX, Crestron, you name it, installation with cheaper iPhones and iPod touches. And there's still the right installation to have these 7, 10, 12-inch um, full-color two-way touchscreens. And if the installation warrants it, well, sure. It's just when the installation doesn't warrant it, um, it's the difference between doing it at all or... You know, or doing it or not doing it, shall I say? And um, you know, if the customer says, "All right, we'll do it because it's good value for money," everybody's happy. Because at the end of the day, you know, a project's a project, and um, yeah, those that are working will survive. Those that sit behind their ivory towers thinking, "Well, we'll just sell them a ten grand touch panel." Well, those customers are still around. There's no denying that, but um, they're not on every corner, and uh, they do well to. Uh, Bear that in mind. Now, Neil, um, the buzzword for the last 10 years in the AV industry has seemed to be the word convergence. (laughs) And uh, we were promised convergence, like I say, you know, we're talking well back 10 years ago. Um, Are we now getting to the point where convergence is starting to become a reality with, and we go back to one of our news stories, which was the, uh, the widgets on TVs and uh, Wi-Fi enabled. Uh, those are Wi-Fi enabled and so on. So it, are, are we getting to the fact now where um, the prices are, are, are at such a level where this will now become a mass market for the likes of the AV Forums members and then maybe onto your normal consumers? Well, LG already have uh, a display that has some control for integration built right into it so I think that the answer can only be yes um, that this now is moving into the mass market. So Neil I, I guess the thing that forum members listening to this are going to ask is um, can we talk about price levels can we talk about budgets can we talk about what I can expect to get in my house with I maybe only got a, a thousand pounds to realistically spend on, on a on a control system so what, what, what am I going to get for that type of money nowadays? Well, I mean, a thousand pounds will buy you uh, a two-way remote control and a processor uh, from one of the the well-known companies. Um, for for example, Control Four uh, would sell you one of their small processors and a remote control for that type of money. Um, you would need to do some programming yourself, but one of the joys of this for a lot of people will be doing the programming themselves. So um, that that's perhaps not such a bad thing. Um, looking at the other end of it, though. It needs to be remembered that for many people, the the entry level into sort of home control is going to be a programmable remote control to take away that clutter that Graham mentioned on the table. And even for £50, some of the sort of Logitech 
uh, programmable remote controls that you can get now. They, they really do an excellent job. Um, and for most people, for a lot of people anyway, that will take care of all of their requirements if it's just for a living room system. Um, and then as you move up from there, of course, you have uh, Logitech devices with RF extenders. Um, so if you have a, a more distributed system, you can take care of that. Um, and then you move up into these options that I mentioned, uh, like an Apple using an Air Remote uh, with one of the global cache uh, extenders. Uh, then you move up to Control 4 and you just keep on going. Um, people can be surprised uh, of how much a control system can actually cost if you keep on going. But the beauty of it is that really for most of us now, there is an option that, that will make a, a big difference to the way that we interact with the equipment in our homes. It doesn't need to cost a fortune. Okay, well, that's a brief look at the world of home control systems, and it, it's certainly a market which is growing all the time, and uh, and is obviously an area which AV Forum's members will become uh, more interested as time goes by. Guys, thank you very much for your time again on the podcast. That's all we've got time for this month, so uh, my thanks to Neil Davidson. Thank you, Neil. No problem, Phil. Always a pleasure. And my thanks to Graham Goodburn. Yes, thank you, Phil. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me too. Always a pleasure, never a chore, eh, Graham? Yeah. <laughs> Even on a Friday night. If uh, if you have any questions about anything that we've discussed in this podcast, then send us an email at podcast at avforums.com. And we'll be back again next month for another Home Cinema Podcast. So we'll see you then. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.